Hello and welcome back. This is Dollars and Dragons episode eight, I believe. And we have here with us Dave, Dave Walker. If you'd like to just briefly introduce yourself, Dave. Hey, I'm Dave. Uh, I'm a fan of uh, fantasy role-playing games. Uh, I don't work professionally, sort of semi-professionally, I guess you could say. Uh, I got my start uh, helping to run online uh, video games, like role-play intensive video games. Uh, and I currently spend a lot of my time writing plot and stuff for uh, LARPs run by a UK company called Profound Decisions. You've and been I'm writing paid. for the Vineyard, and I've just... yeah. I've just interrupted you. I apologize, but yes, I'm no, also good. excited to say that I'm writing for the Vineyard. Yeah, so you're um, you've been paid for it, right? Like with the LARP stuff, do you get paid? No, unfortunately, it is volunteered. I mean, I get oh. paid in a way, not in not in exposure. In fact, I'm completely behind the scenes. Um, but uh, they basically put us up for the weekend. Um, they, oh, okay, okay, Copy they provide all, yeah all the tools. We get free meals and everything. Um, cool. It, it's a it's kind of an interesting. Uh, I don't want to say culture because it sounds really overwrought, but it's it's very much um, in the UK. Uh, Fest LARPs, we get like two thousand players. Um, it's a really big thing uh, here, and so um, it is a, very much like a community. I know a lot of people exploit that in some in some region in some areas, especially in our hobby um, or the wider hobby. But uh, but here it is because you're all in person, you're all hanging out wearing silly costumes in a field. Um, it, it is a bit more <laughs> tolerable just to just be getting paid with food and lodging. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, that's super cool. That's kind of like, um, I think the equivalent over in the United States or something very similar, uh, probably born of those sort of LARP activities is what's popular now is like these festivals that go on for like a week or two weeks or something like that where people really disconnect. What's the normal, like, is it like a week long or two weeks or like, how does it normally work for the one that you work for? We have, uh, uh, three weekends a year um, and it's usually Friday until Sunday uh, afternoon. So Friday evening, we usually have time in around about five and then we finish up on Sunday around about 3 p.m. Um, that's okay. that's quite common for, for big LARPs like Empire. Yeah. And you said you write plots and like you interact with the LARPers and stuff like that. Um, it's kind of like a storyteller, right? Would that be kind of like a similar or a GM? You want to talk about that? Yeah. Um, I think there's lots of comparisons between uh, what I do in, LARP and uh, stuff that happens when I used to run uh, plots and muds in the sense that we do a lot of preparation work running up to the event. Um, we'll write up uh, briefs for our NPCs, uh, which which aren't like playing pieces on a, on a board anymore. They're like little people who will be playing a role. So there's a bit of a sort of a theater uh, influence there. Uh, we'll source uh, props and costumes and stuff like that. We'll work with SFX groups. And then on the weekend, uh, all those plans go out the window when it gets chaotic because there's so many people involved. Uh, but, you know, you're running it from what we call behind the, f uh, the hedge because the field's usually split up into the player field and the bit where all the uh, the crew and stuff are hanging out and we'll be uh, sort of lurking there, sort of peeking over the edge and seeing what's going on now and then. Okay, yeah, super cool. Um, how long have you been doing that for? Uh, so I, I got into LARPing... Um, like in 2000, I think about 2014, um, I tried playing it, but I, it just wasn't for me. Like, um, it's very, <laughs> I was going to say, it's a very social, but I was telling myself there a little bit, but it, <laughs> it, it, it's one of those things where you, it's really hard just to turn up on your own um, to some of them. Uh, I think Empire is quite different because it, it's it's really put all its documentation on the internet. I think it feels a lot more, I want to say mod, I won't say modern because it's not quite there really, um, but mm -hmm. 
a lot of the other ones, like this first lap I went to, they, their rule book was a scanned PDF of, of a something that they'd Xeroxed. So it was it was really sort of arcane and difficult to get into. And so I spent all my time doing but what they call monstering, which is where pe- players will spend a bit of time volunteering to play low intensity sort of uh, NPC roles like monsters and stuff. And I realized I was like, I'm paying 70 pounds a weekend to go and play. And then I'm spending most of my time just volunteering. So I looked into it and, you know, uh, I ended up finding Empire where the crew there are, you know, you don't have to pay a ticket to get in there at the gate and they give you all the benefits, like I mentioned. And it just naturally mm-hmm. rose from there. Like I, I started off on the skirmish crew, spending all weekend running around wearing a rubber orc mask and hitting things with foam swords. And then eventually I was like, oh, I could, I could probably write some of these plots. And so I got into it that way. Yeah. Um, for for those events, I, I assume that just basically the company probably makes money on the businesses that cater to everything, right? So, so yeah, there's there's a lot of um, a lot of uh, collaboration between the, the vendors. The event, yeah, the vendors and the the the, the LARP organizers. Like uh, a lot of the industry is quite hobby hobbyist oriented. So a lot of people like lever crafters, people who make the the foam weaponry. Um, you know, uh, costumers and stuff like that. There, there's really a good front for for those sort of creatives to to you know they they'll pay a uh, business ticket or something and they get to set up inside the in character tent village and um, and and then there's also the food vendors and stuff like that. But they do probably make a lot of money out of the tickets as well. To be honest, um, it is very much because uh, uh, I think they when you've not if you've not got what they call a, a students and unemployed get a discount on it. But I think it's around about seventy five pounds for the weekend for for a player ticket. Okay. Yeah, gotcha. Pretty cool. Um how many um like what's the biggest battle that you've that you've seen at an event like that? It well it's it's been getting bigger year after year. I know that in on the continent in, in Germany for uh, for example there's there's some uh LARPs like one called Drakenfest where they have thousands of people involved in big battles. But in in, in Empire um the biggest ones have been about like 400, um, 400 or so, maybe maybe three hundred at either side, so about six hundred, and it keeps getting bigger year after year. We've been we've been really noticing that post COVID, every event this year, for example, they've beaten uh, previous records for for attendance. So it seems like it's one of those experience based sort of um, hobbies where people are sort of willing to put down the money for to, to, to experience something as opposed to just you know buy more splat books. Yeah, 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 yeah. Splat books. Who buys splat books? I hope all of our listeners, because that's what we're selling. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. And you you mentioned uh, uh, being administrator on a mud. Um, can you describe just what a mud is for our listeners? Probably don't know. Yeah. So muds are like um, I won't say a precursor to 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 modern role playing games, but I think they filled a niche that Discord and uh, paid DMing or at least. DMing online now feels quite well, but back in the day, uh, people would host servers and you could connect using a protocol called Telnet and it allowed you to have a text-based uh, sort of interaction, like a chat room almost, but the there was a, you know, it's just run by bots, right? So you would look around, you could see what the description of a room is and you could type commands to interact with things. Um, but, you know, that medium really lent itself to storytelling and developing uh, role-playing, so where a lot of people who play them to just uh, hack and slash and stuff nowadays have probably found more exciting, engaging things like you know EverQuest or World of Warcraft. Wow, that's really dated me, hasn't it? But um, but a lot, 
a lot of the genres still persist today because it's uh, it, it, you can create a lot of assets really, really fast by by writing, and and it really allows people to 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 immerse themselves. So that's sort of the the one I was playing on. Well, not playing on running. Well, not running, but contributing to uh, was like a role play intensive mud. Yeah, and I remember um, interacting with you as my storyteller in several instances, or one of the administrators who were overseeing like my storyteller. Um, in kind of over the years, and that's how we kind of got to know each other, uh, in part, was through that first. And it was definitely a different sort of environment for role-playing, in which instead of being at a table and having like an intimate relationship um, in comparison when you're playing like at the same table, um, you sort of had more of a disconnected experience with someone, and it seemed more akin to dealing with someone that might know you as a caseworker or uh, just customer service. Um, what was it like to like kind of be an administrator and a storyteller in that environment as opposed to like our more traditional environment, like running a game over a table? Yeah, I mean, um, I, uh, I oversaw the clans you were in. I didn't kill you every time we interacted as well. So, I mean, that's... Not uh, every time. That's right. Not every time. <laughs> but it was chiefly, it just seemed like most of the time I interacted with you was to, to, to kill one of your characters in a gruesome way. Um, but yeah, no, you're right. It is. It is very. It's got that weird, a weird sort of disconnection, um, disconnect between uh, the play, you as a staffer who is um, sort of stepped aside and is in a GM role, and so you know there needs to be a certain degree of I'm not just having you know hanging out with with your friends because there's, there's got to be sort of a sense of impartiality, or we convince ourselves there needs to be, um, uh, and then you know, you want to run plots for people, but you can't really directly go and talk with them. You can't have a session zero around what's going to happen next. I mean, you. Well, when I say you can't, I'm saying that these 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 uh, these frameworks don't have, have never sort of encountered that. These are quite modern sort of concepts, and so they've not really integrated them into the way that uh, people interact with them. So, so it does become a, you can become quite if you're very per- person focused in it. It can be quite a alienating experience where you don't really understand the person because you're not getting full richness of communication, being able to go oh, see a second and say, hey, is everything okay and stuff like that. But it does appeal to someone like me who love, I love sort of um, developing worlds and 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 running sort of making things feel real and immersive because it, it makes you focus a bit more on the environment. You want to try and create things that are really detailed that that speak of a rich sort of uh, underlying history where everything has some meaning to it um, and it gives you a little bit of space to think about things and, and act. Where I, I find when I'm DMing, it, it can be quite sort of difficult sometimes to to um sort of have that sort of barrier because i'm i'm i tend to quite want to reach out and start interacting with people and uh and and doing that so it, there's, there's there's certainly uh two sides to it but i, I think it does create a uh, an environment where you get where you can become quite alienated and if you don't have the proper distance from what's going on and that's not easy when you're dealing with high emotive situations such as which these role-playing intensive environments try to produce yeah, it's it's definitely very different, and it seems like there can be a lot of unintentional disconnect, for sure, in miscommunication, in that model, uh, because the game's running all the time, right? And things can definitely happen to give a player context that the administrator or the storyteller is very unaware of. And it seemed like it, with the model of sort of leadership reports that you have for like the leaders of clans and stuff like that um to would help fill in the gaps but there was oftentimes like a very big disconnect between 
the players and the staff for that reason. So it seems in a lot of ways kind of like a a playground that when the staff members got too directly involved, it felt almost as though we were playing two separate games. There was the game as it exists when the staff are not animating. And then there's the game when staff are animating. And you don't know when that's going to happen. And you don't know when to interact with things or if things are going to remain consistent uh, based on previous interactions. So I found myself, especially as a much younger player, and this was, I think, maybe when I was in my early 20s and like mid 20s, um, over 10 years ago, right? So I would be interacting in a certain way. And then I would have a storyteller do a particular type of thing that would be fit within like the theme and the tone. And then later on, something else would happen, which would completely turn it on, on its head. So a lot of the time it felt like whenever, and you see this sort of happen a lot with players when they start interacting with something they believe is like a staff interaction, they will just run with it and just be obedient to whatever they think this, the story is that the staff is telling rather than interacting with it in a character, uh, in a way that their character would. Um, so I think it's, hmm. Now looking back on it, obviously I, I, I don't agree that it's like the best way to interact or role play. Um, just based solely on that, just because of that. Um, and there's other very distinct challenges, I think as well. But that was the biggest thing for me was like, Whenever staff came around, um, it would feel like it was a different game. And if I did not interact with the plot or whatever they were doing, I felt as though I was being punished, um, either figuratively or actually, um, because I just was playing a different game than them in, in that respect. So it, it never felt like... Unlike in D&D or any of these other games that we play around a table where you build a personal relationship with someone, you're playing together. It never felt like I was playing together with um, people in MUDs, if that makes sense. Yeah, it sort of reminds me of something from um, Apocalypse World, um, which is one of my favorite sort of role-playing games. It's, it's the idea that role-playing games are conversation. And while there might be a parts of that conversation might rise above the what we i guess you could call the layer of abstraction there is supporting on this uh, um, discussion that's going like spilling context like you might describe like a sweeping vista and you say oh there's a you know a, a giant white pyramid stood at the center of the city and somebody goes like oh is it like a sort of flat-sided pyramid like an egyptian one it's like no no it's a tiered ziggurat and i mentioned that because it's it's that's a perfect example of that sort of disconnect between each individual player and i, I guess this is a weakness of of it being a text-based medium is that um, people will read the same description, the same text, the same output, and they'll get vastly different things from it. And there's no way to build that um, consensus. And it just ends up that everybody's playing a different game. And like you mentioned, like one staffer will will might hit the, the note which really aligns with the the game world that you've got, you've you've picked up and you've interpreted from all this text and and the experience of the the uh, the sort of shared experience. And then somebody else will come along who you know they've not read the thing the same way. They've got sort of a different attitude on it and and so there's not you lose that consistency because it's like having multiple dms but you're not able to talk to the dms to get context and you you can't sort of you can't establish amongst yourselves 
like what color is the sky for example you know that's you know in uh, in armageddon that's like a a constant question it's like it turns out it's red but it's really hard because a lot of rooms were written by somebody who forgot to read the world guide and Mm -hmm. wrote that it's blue and and um it takes a lot of effort i think in a controlled in an environment where there's that controlled communication um, avenue to 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 build that and i think it's it's probably impossible to a certain extent and i mean that's the strength of of especially now nowadays when we can you know, have a voice call and play D and D online. Mm-hmm. You can say, okay, well, you know, the game is still going. People are still immersed, but we've just taken a moment to say, yeah, yeah, this is what it's like. Oh, this is what this is, and you, and players can can ask conversations. It's more of a back and forth. It's more human because humans are about conversation as well. I mean, that's yeah. quite a, a, a bold statement to make, but I think it, it's closer <laughs> to how we operate than than uh, a prompt, uh, a terminal where you're you're getting outputted text. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, and I think a lot of the time, what I found, especially being a pro GM now, I run 12 games a week average, um, sometimes a little bit more, and then I find myself like, I'm not doing that many next week. Um, but right now I'm at 12. And what I found, uh, besides like getting really efficient at things, is that most people are really not deciding on a game based on how amazing or performative that you are uh, performative to the wrong word there or how um like theatrical your performance is it's really mostly about like do they like you do they like playing with you and that and the other players that's 90 percent of the decision it's like they you can have a pretty bare bones experience as far as like bells and whistles and stuff like that but if the players aren't fun to play with like most People are honestly just looking for other people who they vibe well with and get along with and f- can feel safe around, most importantly. And um, that's what drives people to pursue professional GMs. And I'm sure it's very similar for um, free GMs. I did that for a while, too, while I was building my skill set um, and kind of learning all of that. But a majority of the the conversation, I suppose, was in in me going from free to professional was do you lose the human element of it does it become solely a business transaction do you love it less no no i don't um some of my players hung out in voice chat last night and we're talking for like two hours afterward just about various things and i went in there and i wasn't doing anything because i don't have two games on tuesday anymore and i just hung out and we just talked about stuff we just gossip <laughs> and like yeah it, that's a natural consequence of like playing games together they just happen to pay the house i i'm the house um to to play there just like you would go to like a game store or something that doesn't stop you from making friends with the owners of the game store um or you know ha- making friends with other players that you're playing with at the game store just because you're paying money to be there or like being at the larp right so and the house always wins, right? Uh, no, not necessarily. <laughs> oh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they they kill my NPCs sometimes, even though it makes me sad. Um. <laughs> it's it's interesting, like because uh, it sort of shows that uh, the split. Because I, I think we could all relate to, you know, there's a lot of games we play where we're playing with strangers and um, we're playing because we want to play a game, and that experience of playing a game is very much a solo thing. Or you might talk to them in a team chat or something like that. 
but like the difference between playing League of Legends, like let's say, or a MOBA with like four strangers versus playing with your your pals, like you know people, your friends you've made in real life or brought into the game, it's so much different. I guess that's the sort of the different, you know, that's the the sort of feel that people look. That's two different sides of the coin, right? We're, we're looking for both those experiences, and I think more and more people are realizing that they can get that latter experience of of building community and building um, relationships and and having a good time uh, in in a group you know, online as well as in person, because uh, and I guess technology has really helped support it um, in a way. Like you said, you didn't have to have loads of bells and whistles. And ironically enough, Armageddon, you know, I was speaking to one of the original founders of it, which, you know, it was founded way back in the late 90s. And they were saying it was literally originally conceived to allow two of the other administrators to run D&D sessions online when they couldn't sort of, because they couldn't drive at the time. So right. And it's like, it's just, you know, every... It's just the same thing over and over again, I guess. Um, you know, um, people searching for that sort of um, for that experience, and, and yeah, no, I, I see. I, I played a few um, sort of um, pay-to-play, I guess you could call it, the DM mm-hmm. DM sessions, and um, you know, the, the bells and whistles do make it kind of cool and help draw you in. But you really just enjoy sort of finding people who you can um, you can play fun characters with, and 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 who are on the who would sort of like you said, vibe the same vibe that you're looking for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, I find that the the Gen Z really have like efficient language sometimes, and like you know, vibe vibe check is very important. So, <laughs> um, yeah, because for sure, like I am totally like I'll put up with like uh, players I don't really get along with for a little while, but eventually, like if I don't feel safe or comfortable around the table, and that can be for any number of reasons. You don't have to be a bad person to like for me to not have a total. Uh, you know, gas with playing at the table. Some people who I really like, I don't like playing D and D with them. You know what I mean? Like it's that doesn't mean that we can't be friends or that you know you're a bad person. It just means that I'm not going to have as much fun playing with you because we're we just don't get along as well as um, people creating in the space at the same time. And I think that's true of any sort of collaborative effort. You're just naturally going to work better with different people. And preserving that culture at the table is, um, whatever that culture might be, is very important to a storyteller or a GM. Because it can be really difficult to make sure that you are being inclusive to the most amount of people uh, possible um, that you actually want to be at your table. So it's a... Yeah, sometimes it just doesn't work out, and that's okay. Yeah, because I mean that's the, the unique thing about role playing games, isn't it? Um, well, not, maybe not unique entirely, but it's like a, a vehicle for expression, almost like um, you know, it's not just you know, like you get out like uh, snakes and ladders or something, which is you know, it's very limited scope. When you run a role playing game, you are using a set of rules to convert your imagination and you know what you're looking for from the game into into a shared experience and and you know it's like you said you could be best friends with, with somebody but you know you wouldn't jam with them in a band or something like that so right um it's, it's that doesn't make mean the unless a person it's just like let's just do something else right yeah and i find like um you know what's happened in my games a lot of the time now and i've had to crack down on it because like i think ultimately that can that can like kill the game but some of my friends now uh my clients my players um who have been playing with me for some of them for 11 months now 
and like who you know amongst us with like who's listening or you know out there playing D&D who would kill to have an 11th month party you know what i mean like you've been playing together for 11 months like you're you can expect that that's going to go on for a really long time and you're going to play more than one campaign together and that's what people are genuinely looking for a lot of people aren't able to find something like that and that sort of consistency is definitely something that makes pro gms appealing because you know that the pro gm is going to keep showing up so i mean i guess for me until i get another job but <laughs> for now that's what i do um i'm going to do it throughout 2023 um so it, they, they have at least one more year with me um my players but um yeah i think it can be very special if you make it and when I was saying uh, before I got distracted um, about cracking down, my players, because I prompted them and I started to just be more personable with them, I used to like get in and like within five minutes, I was running the game. Now I get in and then I talk to them about like what's going on in their lives. And it really started with me just like oversharing because that's who I am as a, as a person because I'm a trans disaster and that's okay. Um, but I started oversharing and, um, it made them more comfortable to share. And now after I've been with the table for three or four weeks, normally, even if it's a brand new group, they start to share more and more details about their life and they start to become like uh, a little bit closer, a little more friendly with each other. And the pregame chatter, um, sometimes takes 45 minutes or an hour, um, before we even get to playing the actual game, um, which I now like have a hard limit. It's like if we hit 40 minutes, then we, we have to go. Like we we talk about that later. Um, and then some of my players uh, who have been like in my critical role game on Thursday nights, love them to death. Um, but there's a segment of that campaign where they, it should have just taken them like three sessions to get to the next area. It took them 15 because they <laughs> because they would start at the campfire. And then they would shit talk to each other for an hour and a half. And then we would go to break. And then they would come back. And then they would be talking about something else. And then they would get distracted. And they would go do something for an hour. Um, but yeah, they, they loved it. So And they still love it. Um, so I mean, uh, it, I guess it's, there's something... There's a unique lightning in a bottle effect for every table that makes it unique. And when you find it, I think it's difficult to let go because... It's so very rare to find something like that. I mean, uh, as you can attest to, uh, I've stuck with the same pool of sort of people that I run games with. You know, it's people that um, you know you're comfortable with, and you know that you can you can have those conversations with. And you, and, but you know, like um, if everybody's happy in that in that game to have that chat, you know, if they want to have like a, a social club where you got to pay to get entry, you know, that's fantastic. Like, uh, I mean, that's the purest yeah. distillation of like the value of of that of, of of the business is that you know the the proof is in the pudding. That's why I always say like whenever people see, I'm sure you've you've had your own sort of um, sort of host of people who detract from the idea of of paid DMing, but like people don't pay for stuff they don't want. <laughs> like that, yeah, that yeah, money tends to like in in of some areas. Like obviously, capitalism doesn't work that way, but I think in in D and D if you're getting somebody to pay and like however many dollars it is for a session and, they, and they're hanging out and having a good time just talk, talk shooting the shit and they're not complaining yeah. anyway, then you're doing something right there's obviously a business value there yeah yeah i just think it's uh so wild in in some ways because i 
was I was thinking about that the other day because we kind of like pointed out like we just spent like uh, there was one session where the 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 party got off track and they instead of doing whatever they were supposed to be doing they concocted this wild plan which was all built around an inside joke against one of the other party members and they spent three hours on that fucking joke and uh that was the entire session was making fun of the paladin (laughs) was the entire session um and yeah that was probably one of the funniest sessions that i've ever been a part of um because you wouldn't have that sort of interaction with a brand new table this is a table that had played together for 11 months you know, so um, it's it's really special and I love it. And when I get out of pro GMing, I know that I'm going to miss it in a lot of ways because I have such um, an incredibly different table. Uh, every single game that I go to, um, it's a different group of people and every table is like different in some ways that make it really fun even if I'm running the same campaign. But no, um, I was about to say something I completely forgot, so I apologize. Great radio. This is excellent radio. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 Um, Let's talk about uh, how you got involved with the Vineyard. And then um, besides me just DMing you and being like, hey, Dave, do you want to write on this? And um, like what your part in it was. And we can just talk about... Uh, what you contributed, and then, uh, yeah, we can go from there. Sure, fantastic. Uh, so, yeah, how do I get started with it? Well, um, sort of as you were sort of moving into the sort of the pro realm, the realm of pros, um, uh, I had sort of hopped on for, uh, we did a brief um, live play uh, series, um, mm-hmm. Thrones and Bones. Look, YouTube, it, it's out there. Um, and... Mm-hmm. Uh, and and during that time, you were sort of actually. I think I've got the timeline wrong here, but I knew that the first sort of stirrings of it was happening just towards the end of of the Thrones and Bones, and um, and it came up like I said, you just DM me, and um, and I, but but even earlier to that, so if I was to, it can be really chaotic in my approach to the answer. I remember when you were first writing the campaign for that would that would first incept the, the vineyard, and you were talking to me about different ideas you were having and stuff like that, and uh, uh, and I remember sort of. His, you know, you talking to me about how it was going and the ideas you were having and stuff like that and seeing all the effort you were putting into like I was like I was looking at my like notebook which has got a bunch of scribbles in it and it's like squirrel <laughs> like with a question mark and a bunch of nonsense on it and then seeing your like very carefully organized notes I was like oh well, <laughs> at least it's reproducible right so it's it's, good. it's, it's science it's a uh, role-playing science but and then uh, you said oh yeah I'm going to turn it into a an actual supplement and, and you said you know would, you, would I like to be involved and I was like well it was quite a big scary leap but yeah absolutely I've always you know everybody's I think everybody who's ever DM'd has probably had a dream it's like yeah I'm going to write my campaign setting they've looked at it and they've looked through somebody's like a uh, campaign book and they've been like I can do this my my setting's going to be you know it's going to have a fantastic book um, it's yeah. going to be thousands and thousands of pages with no illustrations and no contents page and no index or anything but I'm still going to get it out there and uh, yeah um, and so you know like I think yeah, everybody has that dream of, of being able to contribute to that. So it was definitely something I, I jumped at the opportunity to do. Yeah, I remember um having you as one of my first game master mentors and just asking how you did things and why you did things. Um which isn't necessarily how I would do things, but that wasn't the point. 
Um, it's important to have like different perspectives and to see what makes sense for you as a storyteller. Um, in a lot of ways, I believe that um, when I was initially conceiving of like the campaign that I was running, and it was solely based on like me asking players, "What do you want to play?" and then from there, just asking them very simple prompts like, "Wouldn't it be cool if blank?" And then from there, I developed whatever their complete culture, background, whatever was for their character around what they were interested in. And that's pretty much where the vineyard comes from, <laughs> is um, for me, the vineyard was the linchpin that kept that setting interesting, um, because I had a lot of ideas about different uh sectors or quarters in the city and um what made them interesting and like we have the druids we have the wizards and stuff like that um and everybody's like a big trade organization um and it's basically an oligarchy um that is sort of uh contracts out their muscle to a mercenary company um called the company of course because i wasn't big into like naming things complex things um or using complex names and that's who the player characters were, was the company. And they started to interact with the vineyard. And the more they interacted with the vineyard, like the more interested they got. And I was like, okay, so this is like the cool thing in the setting. So for me, I really sort of, I think in a lot of ways, because I put more love into the vineyard than some of the other areas, that's what made it appealing because um, it was just inherently an interesting idea. What if a crime organization controlled necromancy? What if? So, and, and that's really what it came from, was was that. Um, and then we, we sort of developed it from there. I really like your submissions, if we pivot to, like, talking about you um, and, and your work. Uh, I really like your submission with some of the basic histories. And I will say before you, like, we get into it, I liked them so much that we actually are uh, developing the adventures that we're potentially going to attach onto the main book itself based on, like, some of the stuff that you've written because of how good it is. But um, if you want to just talk about, like, uh, we could talk about, like, with the, the ghoulish invasion, right? Sure, yeah. So, um I remember uh, when we were talking about topics and we we're coming up with, uh, you know, like uh, you were just, we were sort of sorting out what, what sort of uh, segments we were going to do. I remember you, you asked me to do the history. And I was like, oh, but I'm not good at history. I, I, I want to do like something weird and gross and something. And and um, and I was like, I don't think that's a good fit at all. But then as I got into it, you know, I, I think I remember my first draft and it was basically, you know, mid early 2000s sort of 3.5 splat book introduction which is just like a bunch of dense text which is telling you where 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 things have happened and 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 you know that one of the things that got me excited about rewriting it is that you're like you know you've got to make it actionable everything has to be something that the player can pick up and use as an adventure seed or it has to have something you know something needs to have a core at its core of every paragraph needs to be something that they can go oh i, I want to use that that's a good idea i can have that um you know, because it's easy to do that with like other stuff in in a, in a splat book. Well, not easy, but it's easier, right? Like if you're describing different parts of the city, you'd be like, yeah, you can, you can imagine the sort of adventures you go in there. But like, it was really really challenging to think. Oh, well, okay, so history. How do you make a 
a timeline, uh, you know, uh, usable in that way, sort of. Um, uh, but, but to get to your actual question, the uh, the Google evasion. So this could be difficult because I've got a push talk button, which means that if I try and alt tab into the document, I'm just going to insert a bunch of characters into it. But here we go. Scrolling down. So yeah, the 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 Google invasion was the the idea that um, we wanted to show how uh, the vine the, the vineyard the vineyard the vineyard um, had uh, slowly taken control of necromancy, but not not just in the actual sort of casting of spells. You know, uh, we we were discussing like the idea that they they seize uh, the, the the they control the means of uh, uh, resurrection. Um, uh, by sort of controlling mines and places where these these gemstones are, are sort of sourced from, but they, there's also the cultural and, and sort of the, the uh, propaganda approach that they might have had to make people more afraid of unchecked necromancy. Um, you know, this idea that necromancy should be something feared and needs to be regulated, uh, needs to be um, uh, uh, controlled by somebody who knows what they're doing, uh, and so the idea was like some some events from the history where behind the scenes the, the vineyard was. Um, uh, Pulling the strings and and causing things, setting things in motions that that could be generations away or or completely sort of you know, like Machiavellian sort of uh, Rube Goldberg uh, approach to causing horrible necromantic disasters that would uh, turn people's that they could swoop in and solve. Uh, so um, you know, setting up um, uh, patsies to 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 take the fall, like training uh, or, or releasing sort of fragmentary knowledge of necromantic texts and stuff, which. Uh, uh, you know, uh, desperate wizards would be uh, would come into contact with and and end up just you know destroying themselves um, uh, with this unchecked power, and then they could sweep in and, and tidy things up and say, "Isn't it a good job that the vineyard is around to uh, to to solve this?" Um, and and part of that was this um, idea of the um, uh, of of them sort of. Of, of ghouls, you know, like in, in other settings, and um, you know, they're they're people who have um, you know succumbed to a uh, almost like a cannibal, uh, uh, cannibalistic uh, urge for whatever reasons, you know, desperation or or, or some sort of cultic activity. Uh, and what if this, um, you know, this idea of it being a disease-debased form of undeath, you know, it's not like the pure preservation that could be brought through the the fine artifice of a of a cut diamond. Um, and what if they sort of offered this to people, this poison chalice, to give them the strength and power to strike back at injustice and stuff? And and but knowing that they they would eventually lose control and 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 uh, you know go on a rampage and 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 having this this uh, creating a uh, sort of a boogeyman that can that they can sort of manage. You know, it's uh, um, creating a crime which they are perfectly positioned to to, to deal with, especially one that can reoccur and, and flare up and is a constant problem. Yeah. Absolutely. It's it's a very interesting, um, I think, very easy way to create a villain that you don't have to necessarily worry about or get rid of um, entirely if you don't want them to be gone. Because I think it's, in a lot of ways, like zombies and like undead are the sort of easy button villain. Um, and creating them in such a way that they have personality as per the direction or direct, uh, yeah, the direction of whatever Lieutenant you want to introduce, uh, under Ashlyn's rule is sort of all you need to keep an interesting undead horde, um, a constant threat, whether it be like very civilized or whether it be like an actual, like ghoul crisis where they're, you know, eating a bunch of people. 
it sort of creates, um, you know, depending on how people use it. So we, we've been very open with, uh, you know, how much of the, the, the sort of background they, they want to pick up and, and, and use. And yeah, I think it is another good feature of, of the vineyard as, as, a, as a source book is that um, you can take as much or as little as you want. Like, oh, uh, I need a reason for there to be, you know, ghouls in the sewer, right? Like people indiscriminately throw ghouls at all sorts of sewers and settings. But now we've provided a way that you can then a few episodes later, like a few sessions later, you go, well, okay, what people are asking, where do these ghouls come from? Now, we, you know, you can sort of draw it back. You can make them sympathetic in a way. In fact, um, uh, certain elements of the way that we set up the, the sort of implied setting um, that uh, of, of the of the city above and stuff like that um, sort of creates a an axis where maybe killing, destroying, eradicating um, the ghouls isn't the sort of approach that your characters want to. You know, it, it helps move away from sort of problematic elements of like, because ghouls are sentient, right? Uh, and uh, not always uh, a product of their own choices. So, you know, why should just, uh, um, why should it be sort of just seen as a sort of, like you said, an easy button for creating a, a villain, which you can, all you have to do is uh, is kill. So you can be really go as deep as you want with it or or as a as classic uh, uh, dungeon crawler. Yeah, you can just take a straight um, Romero approach and just like, okay, well, Undead have broken out and this is a story about survival rather than a story about political intrigue. But it's all in there if you really want to use it um, and, and sort of leverage uh, a little more sensibility and high-class-ness uh, to it. Uh, let's talk about the Pallor and what sort of what sort of weird shit you got into to write something like this? And sort of, if you could, please come up with like a little bit of a summary of what the Pallor is, because I know what it is, because I've read it. Our listeners have not heard anything about this yet. So, so um, yeah, uh, so I remember when we were talking about the idea of lieutenants and how we were going to develop a, a cadre of them and, and, you know, the role they would play in both the source book and the setting. Um, and... Uh, I was I was taken by how a lot of the, the there was lots of different types of horror were being represented by the different lieutenants we have. We've got sort of gothic horror. Um, you've got a more uh, sort of more modern sort of uh, bit of uh, fantastical realism, sort of bringing some modern elements in, you know, like uh, uh, and into some of the, um, the the villains and stuff like that. And I was like, well, my kind of my favorite kind of horror is is body horror um, and um, sort of. Uh, Gross, uh, <laughs> I guess gross horror. Like uh, I, I, I love the thing, and the thing. Uh, I love lots of uh, old eighties uh, 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 video nasty sort of things. And and I was like, well, that one, that's not that's not going to fit directly into the vineyard. That's not kind of the, the kind of setting we're trying to produce. But but there's elements there that can be repurposed and 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 delivered, which act as a vector for the sort of feel of uh, sort of not creeping. I don't want to say creepy malevolence of of you know the uh, the uh, um, their majesty and stuff like that, but how can we how can I get all the elements that I sort of really get me excited about horror, but bring them in a way that is actionable because that's obviously the key word within Vineyard, but also it fits with everything else and doesn't overpower things. And another sort of side uh, uh, inspiration that I was I was having is that I wanted a, a lieutenant that would work at at a low level, but also higher levels as well. I wanted something that could scale a little bit because that way, because, you know, having a lieutenant who's a low level one, it's kind of like in, you know, video games where it's like, yeah, I am one of the 12 evil lieutenants of the grand boss, but I'm also <laughs> the first one. So I'm like really, skilled. and it's like, you want something that will grow with the party possibly. And, and so you can use it at any point in your adventure. 
And so where am I going with this? Well, the palette is effectively, it's built off one of the ideas that you gave me. It was, a, I think you, it was an undead um, uh, plant being like a sort of a corrupted dryad or something like that. And I was like, well, that's cool. Um, but what if it was, instead of being a dryad, it was a fungus because everyone likes fungus. That's super cool horror there. Uh, lots of fun uh, decay and um, undead sort of notes on it. But, but what if it was uh, also like something that, was very insidious and, and spreading, like not just a, a myconoid sort of uh, a, a myconoid sorcerer or something, but it's actually something that was more distributed like a fungus, like, you know, the, the mushrooms that you see on a fungus is is just like a, a very tiny percentage of the entire body. It's a creeping root system that spreads across the undersea and uh, finds its way into every sort of nook and cranny and every secret, but also into people. Like it's a, an infection that um, can... Uh, uh, reanimate uh, um, bodies uh, and not just into minor zombies, but but fragments of this the person that used to be the pala before they became this fungus. Because there's, there's also a human element there in the, in the story of this lieutenant. But it creates a a fragment which is it's not a hive mind. It's a single sort of isolated person, but it's a copy of this uh, greater whole. And so you've got this weird situation where there's a lot of maybe I don't want to say high concept because it's 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 still just a, a fun horror monster uh, enemy. But there's there's lots of stories you can do about um, you know these bodies keep getting up from the from the morgue and they keep trying to steal this particular item. Like why is this happening? It's because like the the, the their Majesty has, has set the pallet to try and get this thing and it's doing it in the weird ways that it does. Why do all these rats sort of assist this weird uh, criminal by unlocking doors and stuff? Because they're infected with the pallet as well and reanimated by it. So the pallet is in the rats. It's in the birds. It's um, this sort of enemy that sort of can surround your players and they can only become aware of it as the adventure continues and they start mm-hmm. encountering um, uh, greater and greater hosts. Um, so yeah, sort of uh, creating a, a character that's actually a disease um, was, a, was a fun challenge. And I'm really, really happy with the, the, the way it worked out. I'm really hoping that there'll, there'll be lots of uh, seeing what people do with it, to be honest. Yeah, I'm, I'm so excited, especially hearing you talk about it. Um, it initially, I remember we were having this discussion like, uh, what sort of lieutenant would you like to do? And then um, I said, well, um, if you're looking to create, some, we were initially talking about like you doing something similar along the lines of, and I was like, well, that's funny because initially for the campaign that I write, wrote, I wrote up something called the Dying Garden. And I'm going to give you one paragraph because that's all I've written about this thing. And then you can just take it and run with it. And it kind of became what it became. It was initially based off like Mike Onnitz, like you said. And um sort of like had a little bit of that infection um, to it, sort of a hive mind. But um, I think that the direction you've taken it in which it's really sort of encapsulated in so many ways, like Body Snatcher and like the thing. And um, this is something that could be like a very high level plot for a lot of game masters that want to uh, really have a long-term backup in case their plots are not as interesting. And you could just very carefully plant all these different things throughout like the last 20 sessions or whatever. And then eventually you reveal, you know, you've got the Paller who has been doing all this stuff and it becomes a real problem at some point when the players or you feel like the players are invested enough to be interested in that plot. And that is something that can drive a lot of 
anxiety in storytellers especially is like are, are the players going to engage with this are they going to be interested in what what it is that we are uh telling or like what i've presented with them and stuff like that but something like the pallor especially you can introduce very gradually and over a, a, a few months even and then when it finally drops like this is what you're dealing with like it i think the reveals are going to be very impactful for the table yeah it's um because it, it could be anything right it's it's the sort of thing that has very small things like oh yeah there's you know it's a rotten you come across something and it's it's covered in rot or you know it's the places in the the, the implied setting where uh, the the character might be carried are going to have this sort of uh, rot and and, and decay in it. and it's just there like um you know people start to put things together and be like uh, you know there's opportunities that stuff and there's also lots of interplay with the other lieutenants i think um around um you know it's 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 more of a disposable lieutenant in a sense because uh, you know there might be a character that who's sort of appears to be quite important and then he gets taken out but then you know it's it's it turns out it's all you know adding into that that flavor of the uh, the, the vineyard being all um plans within plans within plans um uh and uh and, and giving people um giving people something to action on and, and it's also like a fallible one as well it's not you know i think it's a conversation we had early on there was like this idea of it not being a a hive mind in the sense that they everything knows what everything else knows um the only way that the the palette can learn something new is that it's the body that it's got that knowledge in it decays in the garden right uh so two fragments of it could get completely different perspectives on things and end up fighting against each other because they don't they can't they can't really communicate with each other um outside of you know like the way a normal human beings would so um it's it's sort of something that is is not like a deus ex machina sort of approach it's like yes this is a fallible thing that can be fought against thing and you know if you want to have that heroic story and i think that's that's true for a lot of the um the 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 the, uh, the, the lieutenants and the the divine and the vineyard as a whole is is that they, they're all human they're not like saturday morning cartoon um uh, villains. Uh, I mean, they might have some sort of affectations in that. They might have some cool tropes from it, and they can be used that way if you really want to. But if you want to really sort of go in and go like, okay, well, this is this person really evil, uh, or have they been? Is this the the sort of the the, the system is that has been set up? The machinations, the the web of uh, lies and 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 uh, obligations and contracts, obviously, um, which are going to play a big role. Um, you know, that keeps people in, in their place. Can players break that? Will that be their heroic story or will they end up just bound up by it as well? Yeah, I especially like, um, and I'm so glad that uh, so many of the writers have really embraced the the quotes uh, that we have uh, asked of you. And I just wanted to read one that, about the, the Pallor. There is no I, no me, only the Pallor the decaying hand of their majesty, and soon, when it is done, there will be no you either. Super chilling stuff. You do a good job saying it as well. <laughs> <Not about that. laughs> oh, the British accent, it sort of really takes an edge off. <laughs> Oi, there will be no you either. Yeah, because I can't pronounce it. I don't pronounce any ooze. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, the art and everything. It's um, it's like the the emphasis on on presentation and and feel and emotion is really as a DM. I know, like, it's just I want to 
I'm a very, I can be very visual when it comes to like ideas and sparking stuff. I tend not to like, I'll buy a black book and I, I might not even read a lot of it, but I'll be like, oh, that's a really cool idea and I'm going to take it my own direction. Because, you know, mm-hmm. being a DM is, a lot of it is like, oh, I want to create my own world and stuff. And, um, no, yeah, the, the constraints and the, uh, the, the sort of focuses that you've put through, through your, uh, through your management and stuff has been it's been sort of great to, to operate you know like a limitation sort of is the is the uh is a really good way of triggering sort of pretty sort of cool stuff yeah for the project we me and Eva have really focused on how do we find the right track to put them on and then they just need some railings so they can go as fast as they want and um really let people develop what they've wanted to develop um, and just made sure that before they hit the accelerator on their uh, on their formula car, <laughs> uh, that we are pointing them in the right direction first. Um, and we have been really rewarded with exceptional writing because of that. Um, rather than letting them be like directionless and just writing whatever, and then doing a bazillion rewrites, what we have done is just like. Let's have a couple of design meetings and really figure out like what it is that we're doing. And then we'll make some course corrections in the middle if needed. And I know some writers sometimes um, require uh, more questions to be answered. And I'm always available for that uh, because of that. So, um, but that's just part of the job of like being the creator and like working with M as the narrative designer. But yeah. But yeah, we're we're super happy with it, and we're super happy with uh, having people play with it, and then hearing those stories. And like, I think I'm so excited because like, there's so much about this, um, and as well as like the work you've done for the the vineyard history and everything that it's so like it's 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 written in such a way that it can be taken to so many different tables and tell so many different stories that it it's going to be really fun to see um, how all of those develop over time. So uh, with that being said, I think we're going to wrap here. Um, do you have anything that you'd like to talk about? Um, I know you don't really, you don't exist on the internet, <laughs> but um, did you have anything that you wanted to talk about before we wrap here? No, I'm looking forward, like I said, uh, looking forward the same way everybody else is. I'm, I'm, in the community and can't wait for people to get their hands on some of the stuff um, that you got. I know we put out some really cool stuff now. I know if you go to your Patreon, I believe that they can get access to, uh, or is that sort of deal ended the, the siren? Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. So that's, yeah. If you subscribe to the backer kit, um, you're going to get the preview of the siren written by Sarah Madsen. Um, and if you're listening to this much later, um, we are also going to be putting out a different preview PDF um, of Kiana Shaw's Lieutenant, uh, the confessor, um, whom I'm super excited about as well. Um, and yeah, it, the Kickstarter will launch in, in April. And that's, uh, of course, the best way to support us is to support and back the, uh, the Kickstarter itself. But you can get an early access preview with Backer Kit. So do that, and that'll be in the show notes. Other than that, the only thing I can really suggest that people can get engaged with the sort of uh, the writing I do is if you're in the United Kingdom and, or if you're from somewhere else and want to have a weird weekend, please check out uh, Empire by Profound Decisions, uh, available wherever good LARPs are hosted. <laughs> yeah, um, I'll put a link to their website in the show notes as well. Um, thank you for coming on, Dave. Um, and if you would like to support the podcasts so that i can begin uh editing them because currently i don't edit them because 
Um, I don't get paid any money for this. Um, so um, if you would like to support, then you can always become a patron and I'll have additional uh, rewards uh, as time goes on. Um, but thank you so much for listening and see you next time.